Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, a body neutrality podcast where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I'm your host, Jesse Neeland, and today I have with me Naomi Katz, who is an intuitive eating, body image, and self-trust coach. Naomi helps free-thinking grown-ups move away from diet culture and goes by the name uh, Happy Shapes Naomi on Instagram and co-hosts an anti-diet podcast called Satisfaction Factor, which I've actually been a guest on and I highly recommend. Um, and I find Naomi's approach to intuitive eating refreshingly straightforward and realistic. I'm really excited to have her on here to talk about food freedom, food fears, and how none of it actually has anything to do with food. So welcome, Naomi. Thanks, Jesse. I'm really psyched to be here. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm going to have you start just by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so your intro was actually great. I am a an intuitive eating and body image coach, and I do online group coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching, speaking engagements, like webinars and stuff like that um, around intuitive eating and sort of anti-diet stuff in general, like breaking out of the diet culture mess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah, I my approach because I'm not a dietitian and I'm not a therapist. So my approach is really based not on the nutrition so much as the mindset of breaking yeah. out of diet culture, really focusing on like reclaiming autonomy and consent and self-trust from diet culture which you know, we just get so disconnected from those things through diet culture and just re, you know, just relearning that we can eat ice cream doesn't really bridge that gap so much. So that's primarily totally. what I focus on. I love that, obviously. Um, now, I know I have talked quite a bit on this podcast about intuitive eating, but for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what that means, can you give everyone a little definition of uh, what the intuitive eating process looks like? Sure. So intuitive eating is a framework that was developed actually all the way back in 1995, despite hmm. the fact that it has only recently become the buzzword that it is, yeah. um, by two registered dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. Um, and it's not, you know, I think sometimes there's this misconception that intuitive eating is just like not dieting essentially, yeah. but it's actually a very well-defined framework with 10 principles um, that is designed to help us stop dieting, heal our relationship to food, heal our relationship to our bodies. And again, like really get back in touch with our autonomy over these things. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it in part because it's such a uh, descriptive phrase that mm -hmm. you can hear it and then never even read a single other thing about it and think you kind of get it. But uh, I do think it's important to acknowledge like this is a system and a structure. Um, intuitively eating is what we were all sort of born with. And intuitive eating is a whole thing that helps people heal from from dieting and diet culture. Yeah, exactly. Now, because it is such a buzzword lately, it is often presented, especially online and in social media spaces where I feel like a lot of people get their uh, information, education and support around it as the path to food freedom. So <laughs> I'm going to have you talk about your thoughts on the phrase food freedom. And uh, yeah, 
why it's become so popular. Yeah, it is very much the phrase that we hear when people talk about intuitive eating. And honestly, to me, it's a little like nails on a blackboard. I just, I I think it's kind of a lie, honestly. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, yes, like big picture, long-term, we do get to a place where our choices around food don't feel quite so loaded. We do spend less time thinking about our food choices and our bodies and things yeah. like that. But like, that's long-term, big picture. The reality is initially, and when I say initially, it could be a year. It could yeah. be like, because intuitive eating is a lifelong process, which in and of itself can be hard to wrap our minds around. Yeah. But initially, like in the earlier stages of intuitive eating, we actually spend a lot more time thinking about mm. food and thinking about our bodies. We're thinking about them differently, but I mean, it's, it can almost create the sense of like hyper awareness around food and bodies as we're working through the process of identifying our narratives and reframing mm. them and like, and doing that active healing. So there's that. And then also there's the fact that like food freedom is something that implies a lot of privilege, you know, like mm. what does food freedom look like when every time you're in a larger body and every time you go to the doctor or they try and tell you that you need to cut out X, Y, or Z food or yeah. lose X number of pounds? What does food freedom look like if, you know, the foods that you connect with and relate to culturally are in like the mainstream um, culture demonized as unhealthy. Yeah. What does food freedom look like if you don't have access to a lot of the foods that, you know, we might enjoy? Um, yeah. And that can be, that can range from like food insecurity to just like you know, you're a college kid and you just only have X budget for groceries each week. And yeah. like, you're not food insecure, but you also can't like just go and buy whatever you want on a whim to like meet your satisfaction and make peace with food and stuff like that. Yeah. So I see this phrase being used more as a marketing ploy than anything else, because the people using it know that one of the main sources of suffering for the for their target demographic, you know, for the, the people they want to work with is like, I'm obsessed with food. I can't stop thinking about it, whether that's like controlling, managing, tracking, um, planning, you know, like it can be about restriction. It can be feeling more obsessed in terms of like wanting to eat all the time. Whatever it is, food is taking up way too much mental real estate. And so people promise to keep it from taking up mental real estate, which is so understandable, totally. but also not realistic, not really accessible. And it also really presents it as if there is this like perfect end goal, like you'll just nail it and now you're free. And that that's the end for you. You're you figured food out now. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, that's just not real. The re like, Again, the reality is that like, even when you hit that like longer term, big picture goal of like, you know, having some relief from the constant thoughts about foods and, and food and stuff like that, 
you still go through periods sometimes where that voice might get loud again, or food feels particularly complicated. Um, Maybe you get a new medical diagnosis, maybe, you know, like for any number of reasons, maybe you're just going through a period with a lot of stress and you're having a hard time navigating hunger and fullness and things like that. And it's like, that's okay. That's just part of being human. Mm -hmm. But like, again, I don't think it really aligns with the idea of food freedom that we see marketed around intuitive eating. It also presents it like a really easy, joyful process, which of course is way more effective marketing saying, uh, slightly less distress around food as the end goal is not sexy uh, or catchy, but like it is ultimately way more realistic. Um, so I would love to hear you talk about some of the hard realities of the intuitive eating process, what people who are sort of searching for food freedom might be surprised to discover or things that are harder than they might expect going into it. Yeah, I um, I'm a big fan of being like, uber realistic about what (laughs) this process is like. Um, And it's, it's interesting because even though I am so like upfront and transparent about this stuff, I find that it still takes people by surprise when we start Mm -hmm. to actually do the work. And like, that's okay. Like, it's really hard to really truly prepare people for what's going to happen. It's like, like just as an analogy, I had a surgery over the summer. And I mean, I read up on it. Like the doctor told me what it was going to be like. I still was fully unprepared for like what the recovery was actually going to be like, because you can't really put yourself in that just by hearing about it. So we like to think we're so good at that, (laughs) but like notoriously bad at it. So, so bad at it. Um, and like, that's okay. But yeah, their intuitive eating is not it is not fun. It's not a fun process, honestly. Um, So yeah, I think one of the big things is I think people are tend not to be super prepared for how much they are going to be thinking about food and their Mm -hmm. bodies in the earlier stages of the process. Um, You know, we've kind of already addressed that, but it is really surprising to people. It is like constant. Can you give an example? So somebody who comes to you, for example, and says, I just want to stop thinking so much about food in my body. So I'm going to give up dieting and I'm going to like heal all that shit. What brings them into thinking about it more than during those first, uh, that first phase? Yeah, there's kind of a number of phases of how that happens. So, um, you know, one of the first things that we address in intuitive eating is honoring hunger Mm. because most people come into a place of intuitive eating. I'm sorry, come into intuitive eating from a place of restriction and dieting. Yeah. Yeah. And so most people are really not adequately honoring their hunger when they first start intuitive eating, even when they think that they are, even when they're like, oh no, I quit diet. I stopped dieting like six months ago. And it's like, cool. I'm that's awesome. And that means we're in a really good place to do this. And also we then discover that they're really not eating actually enough. And so the first thing is starting to honor hunger, to eat more regularly. And a big part of that is tuning into not just like 
the more advanced hunger cues, like a growling stomach, but the yeah. earlier hunger cues, yeah. like a dip in your energy, starting to think about food, stuff like that. And as a result, they end up eating a lot more often than they did before. And yeah. it's like, it's, just, you know, it's like if you start drinking a lot of water, because you're trying to focus on yeah. hydration and now suddenly you have to pee every half hour uh -huh. and it's such a pain in the butt and you feel <laughs> like you just you're like constantly peeing that's kind of what it feels like for a yeah. lot of people um I had a client once refer to it as hunger cue fatigue and I think that oh was like god that's such brilliant. a great phrase right yes you're like, this is so boring. <laughs> it's exactly. so much work. Yeah. And like, just like, really, I was like, just getting into a groove with work and now I'm hungry again. Like, oh, yes. and it's like, really, I have to go grocery shopping like every three days now. <laughs> like, what is that? Who goes grocery shopping this yeah. much? And it's like, yeah. So there's just, there's that part of it. And then when we start to unpack, when we start to look at like food narratives and food police and food fears and stuff like yeah. that, there's kind of two phases of that. The first phase is you have to like actively build an awareness of what that internal voice is saying. Yeah. Um, and I sh should actually call it an internalized voice because like yeah, a big yeah. thing is like, it's not actually yeah. internal. <laughs> you didn't make this up. <laughs> right. Um, and so you have to actively build an awareness of that, which, because you can't change things you don't know are there. So awareness yeah. is always the first step. So like that takes a lot of focus on food mentally and emotionally and stuff like that yeah. and then the next part of that is reframing like consciously intentionally reframing those thoughts yeah also takes a ton of like time and energy and yeah. attention um and ditto for thoughts about our body like it's the same thing you have to build the awareness and then you yep. have to do the reframing and it's just it is a lot yeah also I feel like the the stage and maybe this isn't like the the very first thing someone's going to but as you build awareness of the fears and the narratives and all these things you're also doing quite a bit of fear facing Yes. Which is like maybe not super time consuming, but energetically exhausting. Like yes. if you are afraid to eat sugar and every day you have to eat sugar to face your fear. I mean, that is like super draining. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, part of, you know, addressing this from a place of autonomy and 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 consent is that we want people to do this at their own pace, mm -hmm. like in alignment with what they have capacity for. You know, if you're going through like an like a, a stressful time, if you've got a lot on your plate, then yeah. maybe you don't eat sugar every day. But right. like, you know, maybe you have a week where you kind of just block this all out for a little while. Totally. And like, that's okay. That is part Absolutely. of the process. It's a really important part of the process. But yes, like it is this ongoing, very energetically draining process, yeah. which I also want to just clarify, because that sounds really dire. Like, why the hell would anybody want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but it actually is also like very rewarding because while yes, it's very hard, you also have these moments where it's like, oh my gosh, like these like aha moments mm -hmm. that are that like just clear the way for a better relationship yeah. and like you there is progress being made through all of that too like there Absolutely. are there are good parts <laughs> and it's worth it it works it's worth it yes. and on the other side like maybe it's not perfect food freedom in the way that we're sort of sold this thing in marketing but 
it is really the only way to break free from the constant, constant management and thinking and obsessing and all of that stuff around food. Absolutely. So holy crap, it's worth it. Also, I call those moments uh, like green light moments with clients. Yeah. And I try to always reflect it back. The moment I hear something, I'm like, green light, we found a green light. Like you're on the right path. You're doing the right stuff. It's working. It's working. It's going to go away. <laughs> right. And then it's going to come <laughs> back. But like these moments matter to pay attention to and say, oh, well, I've been struggling. This has been hard and exhausting. But I did have the first moment of just like eating something at a social event and not even thinking about it. Right. And oh my gosh, those are huge. Yeah. I think another thing that can be really surprising to people that it's hard to really wrap your head around initially is that this work can feel kind of isolating. It's mm, really, really yeah. hard. So a lot of the folks that I work with are like the first people in their family and mm -hmm. their friend group to go down this path. Yeah, And I mean- kudos to them that is huge because yeah. honestly being the first person to do that like you are a change maker because mm -hmm. while it feels really isolating initially like the change that these individuals are making ultimately does ripple out into like yes you know their social circles and their communities and stuff so that's huge but it's also really hard because mm people don't understand like it's so much yeah. against what we understand in mainstream culture about health and about yeah. bodies and about just everything really um that it's it can be really challenging and most people you know well obviously we work on boundary setting and we work on like how to have these conversations yeah. most people need like aren't super ready to have those conversations when they first start doing this because yeah. they themselves aren't a hundred percent like really grounded in this work yet yeah. and having those conversations is very vulnerable mm -hmm. um and so it's just it's hard like initially yeah. like until you feel ready to start having those conversations you're just around people who just don't understand and you kind of have this choice of like either not being around them yeah. or being around them and feeling bad yeah. and it just it sucks and I, I often think about it like basically everybody gets to this point where they have like two discomforts that they kind of choose between there's the discomfort of saying something and the discomfort of not saying something <laughs> yeah totally and like that balance shifts over mm -hmm. the course of doing this work and at some point it becomes impossible to not say something. Yeah. But until you get to that point, it's just, it feels bad. Yeah. And that goes for like every stage of it too. Yeah. If you're just not dieting, that's already sometimes a huge isolator. If the people in your life are bonded over body bashing or, you know, talking about diets or it just is so obvious to them, like- that, you know, the whole point of, oh, you froze. You froze. Hold on. Oh, there we go. Okay. I'm oh, you're back. Down. Hold on. Okay. Where did you lose me? Um, that's a really good question. At, um, I heard you say you froze is, is where I lost oh, okay, you. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I'll just go in and say, 
So it's isolating at every stage of the process because even just saying I don't diet anymore or I'm not pursuing weight loss anymore can be, depending on the people in your life and what they value, it can mean that you're no longer able to bond with them. It can mean that they're, now they're actively judging you. It can mean that there are like major questions around what you're doing, eating, wearing, like there's, and then as you move even deeper and you're like, actually, I'm not just, you know, choosing not to try to lose weight. I'm I'm actively pushing against these narratives and uh, maybe I'm gaining weight as part of my healing process. Like there's so much about it that leads to people feeling alone, un misunderstood, judged. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it really is not something that people talk about. Right. And the same is true just in body neutrality alone um, because yeah, this is like one of the ways we've been taught to bond with each other. Yeah. And as with most of these things, for folks who are in a larger body, it's like exponentially harder yeah. because like one of the way, you know, you already have, you already lose some social capital just from being in a larger body. One of the ways that folks in larger bodies tend to try and bridge that gap and regain some social capital is by like performing health and, yes. you know, doing the good fatty thing. Ooh, and yeah. so like actively being like, no, I'm not doing those things. Yeah. You lose what little social capital you might have reclaimed by performing those right. things. So this was one of the reasons I put um an appendix at the back of my book like major major part of the process for a lot of people is how to talk to the people in their life about what they're doing on this journey. Um, and I'm like, you know, there's no like perfect answer because it's always going to be context dependent. How much energy and resources do you feel like investing in this person, you know, compared to like, is it a barista who makes a comment versus your mom? Like there's probably going to be different stuff there. Right. And where are you at in the process too? Like, what do you feel available and confident to say? Um, but this is one of the reasons too, I think it's so important to like read the books, surround yourself in the community, even if that's online, like go find people who you don't have to educate to be seen and validated in this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is incredibly, I mean, honestly, nearly impossible to do this work alone. Yeah. And like, maybe that means you have online community. Maybe that just means you follow people on social media yeah. who are in the same space. Sometimes like my one-on-one -on -one clients, like I'm the only person that they yeah. like feel comfortable talking about this to openly yep. at this point. That's fine. That's one of the reasons why yeah, like same. just, I mean, once a week you come in and you have the space to just like get it all mm -hmm. out of your head essentially. Um, but yeah, like we, I also do a lot of work with clients around like, how do we navigate these things? Yeah. Um, so what would you say if we were to do completely transparent marketing mm -hmm. around intuitive eating, the whole process of rejecting diet culture and reclaiming, uh, you know, your relationship to food in your body, what does that look like? Or oh what, would it, what would it sound like? That is a really great question. <laughs> um, and it's especially, it's a great question. And it's also very much what I strive to do mm -hmm. in my marketing. 
<laughs> but this is why I have a copywriter <laughs> <laughs> because it's complicated. Um, yeah. I think that we absolutely would stray, we would stay away from terms like food freedom and, um, and things like that. I think we would be, we would talk a lot more about, you know, how isolating this is and how hard this yeah. is. Like, I think we would be much more realistic about that. Um, I think we would be very realistic about how long this takes mm -hmm. um, because that is always a shocker to people. Yeah. Um, well, when you've got programs and coaches out there saying things like, you know, six weeks to food freedom, like it's a huge disappointment that it took years, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, it's so funny. My group program is 40 weeks long and mm -hmm. I have never seen another one out there that is that long. And I think I that's very either. much a deterrent to people for joining it. But like, I also can't in good conscience do yep. an intuitive eating program that's six weeks or like eight weeks long, because yeah. like, what can you even take away from that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, culturally, like because diet culture is what it is, we're very much conditioned to see things as like shorter bite size. Yeah. And I think we have a really hard time conceptualizing like, no, a year is not a long time to be doing this work. Like this yeah. is forever work. And so I do think we would be much more transparent about that, yeah. um, in marketing. But then I also think we would, you know, want to balance that with the wins, like those green light right. moments, yeah. the, like we would, um, you know, we would really celebrate how even these little, even little green light moments, like really, really change what our relationship is to food and to our bodies. Yeah. I think we would, um, definitely focus on the, change maker portion of it the mm. like this is not just for you this is for your yes. family and your friends and your community and that like yeah be like you it's never just you it's about yeah. all of this especially when people have kids yeah. and I'm like hallelujah you're breaking this like generations long cycle I mean that is massive Huge. and obviously whoever's in your circle you know is is equally important to be cycle breaking for in so many ways but like I think just being in that position and doing that work is so so cool as someone who isn't a parent I'm like oh my gosh look at you go because I work with so many adults, of course, who are like, I got this from my mom, you know, like it's, yeah. uh, it's healing the world just by healing yourself. Absolutely. And I work with folks who are moms. I am not a parent, but many of my clients are parents. I also have clients who are teachers Yeah, and it's really interesting to see them navigate like the health curriculum at school or right. like the parents that are, that have, you know, the parents' relationship to their children's eating and stuff yeah. like that. And so, yeah, like these are like making legitimate change yeah. in places where it's really important. Yeah. I also think like a thing that doesn't get represented. Well, I mean, obviously my entire brand, the whole reason I picked neutrality as, you know, it's become so much more now, but body neutrality appealed to me because part of the marketing around it is instead of saying like, 
you're going to get to a place that's good. It's basically saying you're going to get to a place that's less bad, which is so much more realistic, achievable, and actually the majority of the work I was already doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like saying, you know, it gets better, but those thoughts might never completely go away. Is hard. It's hard to teach people up front that that's okay because your your relationship to those thoughts will completely change. That having those thoughts can shift from like they ruin your life to they are interesting information that you work with. Yes. And that's something that takes time and you really can't convince somebody of upfront, I think. Absolutely. I um, you know, I I don't really believe in like blank slate therapy or like, you know, or coaching where like you are like you withhold your personal experiences with yeah. stuff a ton. Like obviously I don't I don't like to center myself in things, but I do like with consent share personal things because I think it's helpful, especially for people who are newer to the process to see like what this could look like in practice, like years down the road. And so it's funny, I actually had a group call last night and we were specifically talking about challenging food police, challenging food narratives. And we were working through, like we were talking about this kind of arduous reframing practice and stuff like that. And then I shared and we talking about how these things sometimes years down the line, you're like, oh, weird. Here's a food rule I didn't even realize I had. Totally. And so what I was sharing was I had this experience. I mean, it was literally like a year, a year and a half ago, something like that. Again, I've been doing this for quite some time at this point. And I found myself in the grocery store thinking like about to buy some yogurt and thinking, Ugh, plain yogurt just sounds like not very good right now. I wish I could have vanilla yogurt. And then being like, <laughs> hold up, why can't I yeah. have vanilla yogurt? Of course I can have vanilla yogurt. And like buying that and just moving yep. on with my day, essentially. And I was kind of explaining that like down the road, like again, like here's a food narrative that I've apparently been carrying around that yeah. I didn't even realize was there. But did I have to stop in the grocery store and go through a whole reframe process? Right. No, I could just be like, <laughs> that was weird and yeah. grab the yogurt yeah. and go kind of a thing. And so like it does get to a place where yeah. no, the thoughts don't totally go away, but they also don't require the same time and energy yeah. and like you know, just work to get through. That's such a great example. I also feel like sometimes I, I, I like to be very dramatic in my, um, <laughs> I just am very dramatic, I guess, but I feel like sometimes I'll describe to clients like the tantrum, the full on tantrum I'll throw when I run into another thing that I'm like, didn't I solve you already? Like, what are you doing here? Um, like I, I, years after having healed so much stuff in my own relationship to food and body, I like challenged myself. It was like fast food had not gotten challenged yet. So I challenged it and I was like, okay, done. And then like with my current partner, he eats a lot of fast food more, more so anyway, than I would think is like the right amount. And I was like, God damn it. There's a right (laughs) amount in my head. Like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, this is like a decade after I like did all that work before. So I feel like it is so, so possible to run into them from a place in the future where it just, it can be funny. It can be light. It can, it can be just like, okay. Yeah. And then there are other times where you're not running into like an old conditioning role. You're literally running into like your coping strategy is creeping back up. 
-hmm. And those are much less fun to throw tantrums about because they actually really suck. But like food is coping. There is so much in it and it's going to get loud when you need to cope more and it's going to get easier when you need to cope less. Yeah. And along those lines, food is coping. So is restriction. Right. So like one of the reasons why when you're, when you're going through a time of stress is if you are a person who habitually restricts when you're coping, which PS there's been studies like people who have a history of dieting are more likely to engage in things like emotional eating, but like, especially if there's narratives around that are then also more likely to restrict. It's very complicated, (laughs) but as a result, you know, if you're a person who habitually would try and clamp down on food intake during times of stress or illness or whatever, then those voices are going to get loud when you're going through a time of stress. But if you've done all this work, then you're also able to recognize, oh, hey, that's my coping mechanism. Uh And so what else can I do to cope with this? Like what other coping tools do I have available to me? I always say like, yo, if you were a gambling addict and you went through recovery, then right now during this high stress time, you would be thinking about gambling. Like it doesn't matter that you're thinking about dieting again or obsessing over your body or whatever it might be. It's the fact that at a certain point, you locked in a pattern for coping and now you need to cope. So like that can be really interesting But it no longer, after you've gone through this process, it no longer has to have the power of like, well, I guess I'm a terrible person who has to do this thing. You know, it doesn't have that moral significance. It's just like, whoa, I am not doing well right now if these are the kind of thoughts coming up. Exactly. That goes into something huge that I know you're very passionate about, which is helping people understand that intuitive eating actually has nothing to do with food. Very similar, I think, to how I'm always saying that body image issues aren't actually about how you look. Um, And that it's always about something deeper. So I'd love to have you talk about what you mean by that and maybe give us some examples. Yeah, absolutely. And yes, it is. So it's one of the reasons why I think your book resonated so deeply with me is because I was like, oh my God, we could just like switch food for body here and it would just (laughs) cover everything. And, and yeah, that's the thing is, um, okay. So within intuitive eating, uh, some of it is about food. Right. Like, obviously, there is like the actual, like, making sure that we are not biologically restricting, like, making yeah. sure that, like, we are adequately feeding our bodies. That's important. That is a big part of, of intuitive eating. And a lot of it is unpacking our mindset around food, our food fears, our food rules, and stuff like that. And that's where we get to the point where it's like, maybe this isn't really about food <laughs> because most of our f- food's not scary. Like, obviously there's <laughs> exceptions to that, you know, like life-threatening allergies and stuff sure, like that. Sure. Like that's, the, the, we get like, that's, that's, yeah. let's just stipulate that that's not what we're talking about here mm-hmm. <laughs> for outside of that context. Food is not scary. Like we're coming up on Halloween. Like nobody is going to be like dressing up as food to be scary. Like that's just, sure. food's not scary. What's scary, what people are afraid of is what they are worried that food will do to their bodies, to their health, to their social standing, 
basically. Mm. So when we're talking about food fears, when we're talking about food, we're not really talking about the food at all. We're talking about fears around, you know, losing our identity, losing our privileges, losing um, access and like social accessibility to things, um, which are real, especially for folks in larger bodies or already marginalized bodies, but also are never going to be solved by just eating the food. Yeah. Like these are things that have to be looked at at on like a whole different level. So when we're talking about like, oh, I'm, you know, I can't, I'm afraid to eat too much ice cream. I'm afraid I'm going to overeat ice cream. It's like, okay. And then what would happen? Like, yeah. what is the actual fear? Cause yeah. you're not really afraid that your stomach's going to hurt. Like mm. you're, what are you, what are we actually afraid of here? Can you give an example? Follow that through? Yeah, absolutely. So the fear generally will go in one of two directions. And honestly, they're kind of the same direction, but how we get there is different. So one of those directions is just straightforward. I'm afraid I'll gain weight. And it's like, okay. And what would that mean? Like, mm-hmm. what if you did gain weight? What if you ate all the ice cream you wanted to and you gained weight? Well, then I would have to buy new clothes. Yeah. I My friends and family might judge me. Mm-hmm. At work, they might see me as less competent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I might have trouble. The doctor is going to tell me to lose weight. Yeah. You know, there's there's a whole list of things there that, you know, you're afraid of. And some of them are things that we can work on reframes, things like my friends and family are going to judge me things like, you know, I don't like, you know, I'm, I'll be uncomfortable, which there's a lot to dig into there Mm -hmm. (laughs) also around comfort, but it's like, okay, but you know, how could we actually make your body comfortable at whatever size that it is or more comfortable at least, you know, there's, there's stuff that we can dig into there. And then there's stuff that like, we kind of just have to work through, values work around it and like advocacy and stuff like that because they're grief and grief (laughs) just like this sucks and I hate it and it's true and that's it totally absolutely um so that's the that's the one branch the other branch is I it won't be healthy I will be unhealthy Mm. and so then we have to go down the whole path of okay well what what is health Like in what way will you be unhealthy if you eat this ice cream? Yeah. Like most of the time we end up in the same place around, I will gain weight and that is unhealthy. Sometimes the, the actual nuance of that is different. Like either, you know, my knees will hurt. I, you know, Mm. I, diabetes is a big concern around that there's science for that. There's like a lot of that stuff we can address with like direct, like just scientific studies with the actual reality is around weight and health around, um, diabetes, especially like a lot of people don't know how genetically based that is as opposed to dietary. Um, you know, there's, there's some work to do. And then of course there's also all of the systems work and the grief work and stuff like that. Yeah. This is why I feel like so many people come to this work, both the food stuff and the body image stuff. They come to it with like 
the most invalidating perspective on themselves where they're like, I don't know why I'm being so stupid. Nobody cares what I eat. Or like, I don't know why I can't stop thinking about how I look. Nobody freaking cares. This is just me being crazy. And I'm like, uh, actually, it's you trying to survive in a world that hurts. Like there is nothing superficial or vain or silly or ridiculous or crazy about this. It all makes sense. Absolutely. These are deep things, like deep, painful human things. Absolutely. And honestly, like that is very much aligned. Like it's so important to validate that because another way in which intuitive eating is very much not really about the food is that there is a very strong link between being able to um, hear your body cues and more importantly, respond to your body cues and self-silencing. And when we're talking about self-silencing, we're talking about censoring our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, and yeah. like invalidating those things. So again, there are studies that specifically yeah. show this like pretty strong link between um, people who don't self-silence and people who eat in a more intuitive way and are able to like adequately and regularly meet their body's needs. Mm -hmm. And I definitely see that play out with the folks hey. that I work with, like people who tend to ignore their body cues are often people who tend to ignore their needs for other things. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that gets tied into that, you know, like, so a lot of times I'll be working with somebody and what comes up a lot is like, they'll be like, God, it was so bad this week. Like I like blew up at my family and I felt so bad about it. And we talk about it and it's like a very similar pattern. So yeah. you ignore hunger, you ignore hunger, you ignore hunger. And then all of a sudden you're like binging. You're like, yeah. you feel like yeah. you're out of control. You're eating everything in sight. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You you don't ask for help. You don't ask for help. You don't ask for help. And then all of a sudden you're exploding at your family for not helping you yeah. because you've never addressed this need that's just been building in you because you don't see it as valid. Yeah. And just like with hunger, okay, a hunger, there's a ton of diet culture narratives telling us to like shut down that cue. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of societal narratives that tell us to silence this other stuff too, right? Yeah. Like there's so many societal tropes around like nagging mothers or nagging wives, right? Like needy girlfriends. Needy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know the cool girl trope really appealed to me when I was younger and it turns out I'm, well, I guess I'm not a girl either, but I'm definitely not cool. I am a very needy person. Big didn't same. Work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, oh man, I tried so hard to be the low maintenance yes. slash no maintenance girlfriend for oh like my most God. of my life. Turns Brutal. out I really Psych. enjoy being maintained. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yes. Um, so yeah, like that's, and so there's none of this exists in a vacuum. So it's not like, you know, we're not, we're never blaming. It's never like it's never baffling that people come into this yeah. work feeling this way, but that's totally. why it's so important to validate. Like it makes sense that you feel this way. Like yeah. it is okay that you feel this way. 
absolutely. Also, like the self-silencing crossover, I definitely see it in my clients. I've definitely experienced it myself. In some ways, I think of it as like at the very like tip of the iceberg level, you literally are just noticing that you have feelings and needs. When you learn how to listen to your hunger and fullness, it's a lot easier to learn how to listen to things like your emotions, your desires, your boundaries. Like in some ways it's somatic connection, but it's Mm -hmm. also so much more than that because by learning that you can trust yourself and take up space and all of these other things that sort of surround giving up diet culture, um, you also kind of learn like all of the, the plan B's we've had to meet our needs you know, like we can use food and eating as a plan B to meet almost any need. Yeah. Like, well, nobody's here to affirm me. I will affirm myself with food or by restricting food. Like both shove that shit down. Both feel like a little bit of an approximation of what I want. They can both feel like love. They can both feel like care, right? Like there's so much that when you stop dieting and suppressing and and all of those things, like just a million other pieces of your life open up and it goes so much beyond just, Oh, I noticed that I have a need and, and now I'll meet it. You know, it's funny. Like I, I hate the phrase food freedom, but I do Mm. feel like you got a lot of life freedom from this work. Um, because yeah, it just, and I, and I see it constantly. I mean, it certainly has been my experience, but I see it without, like, it's never just, oh, now I can eat ice cream. It's like, now I can eat ice cream and I can set boundaries and I can have conversations and I can ask for help. And like, it's just, it becomes, it just, it's life-changing. And like, that feels like an overstatement, but it's very much not. This should all, see, this is why we need copywriters in the world, but like (laughs) this should all be part of the transparent marketing, right? We're like intuitive eating is so much harder and worse than you thought. And also it will improve your life in ways that have nothing to do with food and you're not even prepared for because nobody, I don't, well, I mean, maybe some people, but nobody's like sitting there Googling late at night, like how do I stop dieting and also learn to set boundaries and express my needs and feel worthy (laughs) in my relationships? Like I don't think that's not usually where we go with it, you know, at least not is, all at once. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it is so much the same thing. Do you think you could give us another example of this? Like how the sort of relationship between our eating habits and self-silencing can look or does look with clients? Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, at a very, very basic level, there's, um, you know, we do. So when we start talking about honoring hunger, we don't just dive into hunger. We usually do some like baseline foundational work around just generally tuning into like physical sensations in our bodies. And a lot of times what we see early on is that people don't feel physical sensations until they are intense and uncomfortable. And A lot of times when that's the pattern, we see those same patterns in other areas of life, asking for help, things Mm -hmm. like that. Ditto for pleasure. Um, A lot of times we see people, you know, reconnecting with pleasure in food is actually a really great part of intuitive eating. (laughs) Like actually being like, oh, I'm allowed to enjoy this thing. Like this doesn't just have to be fuel. This can be 
connection and like sensory pleasure and all of that. Mm. And a lot of times we see people, like if you're limiting your pleasure with food, that sometimes you're also like not entirely comfortable with pleasure in other contexts or like, like allowing yourself to like prioritize things that you just like. like that don't necessarily, they're not necessarily productive. They're not necessarily like in furtherance of what other people need, but like, it's just pleasure. It's just for you. I see so much crossover with that. And it's like the self-silencing very specifically around your desires, because Mm -hmm. we can talk about needs And there are so many needs, emotional needs as well, which can easily get framed as not a need, but like there is, there is something extra tricky and hard for people to access. I think even after they've been like, okay, my needs deserve to be met. I'm allowed to have needs. That's hard enough. But then there's this whole other layer of like, what about desire, which feels almost optional or pleasure, which feels definitely optional. It is a whole other layer and when you have been like suppressing it for so long because your desires inconvenience people or would push them away or your entire identity and self-worth is wrapped up in being needless and like never requesting anything from anyone, that one is so hard. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like needs are one thing, yeah. wants, desires, pleasure. Like I hear so often from clients, this feels really frivolous, but, and it's yes. like, no, like you don't have to yeah. qualify that. Like it's not frivolous. Oh man, I I get so excited whenever this comes up with a client because a lot of our assignments, as you can imagine, and, and yours probably are too, tend to be very heavy, tend to be very like, you know, just just a lot of that darker work. And so I love when it comes up and I give them like a pleasure practice or a joy practice. I'm like, this is my favorite one because it's yeah. such an important piece of the puzzle, but you know, you can't really get there till you get there. You maybe could start there, I guess. I I know some coaches who do, and maybe it all ends up in the same direction anyway, but uh, God, I love seeing people be like, maybe it would be okay if I just wanted to feel good. And I'm like, "Uh uh uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. Yes, definitely. Yes. It would be great. Actually. (laughs) You're allowed to. And in fact, as a professional, I am insisting upon it. Yeah. I insist that you feel good, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh, man. So, okay. I did want to go back because I feel like there's something in the end goal of it being presented like food freedom or whatever that can be really tricky and really misses the the point or the fact that like we have a relationship with food and our bodies until we die. Like this mm-hmm. is a forever thing. It is going to go through any number of iterations, just like any other relationship you have until you die, which there are not that many. So like, this is a particularly forever thing. Yeah. And I wanted to hear a little bit, maybe like what, how you would explain that, or maybe if somebody's just starting out, like how to conceptualize what that relationship can or should look like as they've moved through the like intensive phase of intuitive eating, Mm -hmm. what is the after, you know, the next 50 years after the first couple of years? Yeah. So I am a big believer that the real takeaways from intuitive eating are not necessarily about food, but are about certain skills that Mm -hmm. we learn. And they're like, honestly, life skills that we can also apply to food in our bodies. Mm 
So there's, you know, recognizing that our needs as valid and learning to honor those needs. Yes. This is a skill that we cultivate through intuitive eating and that we will continue to practice and hone through the rest of our lives. Um, Self-trust is a skill that we practice. Like I loved, you know, there's a lot of reciprocity in, in sort of the self-trust process around intuitive eating. So like diet culture and dieting really disconnects us from self-trust, not just with food, but in like many other areas of our lives, reconnecting with self-trust with food can also help us reconnect with self-trust in other parts of our lives. There's a lot of reciprocity there. So Again, learning to trust ourselves and see ourselves as trustworthy. This is a skill that we will continue to practice and hone through the rest of our lives. Um, Critical thinking is Mm. like a huge one that we like, you know, a big part of intuitive eating is learning to think critically about outside information in general, like yes, about food, yes, about bodies, but like, you don't just learn to critical think about one thing. Like critical thinking, again, is a skill that applies to our whole lives that we will continue to hone and practice. Like looking at the sources of our information, looking at who benefits and who's harmed, like really understanding the power of information and like what the intent of information is when we get it and and stuff like that. Um, You know, all of those, well, most of those anyway, really, really give a person their agency back. Mm-hmm. And diet culture is so invested in us being disempowered and like listening to an external source who supposedly knows better about us than us. Um, and the lack of self-trust obviously is a huge part of that. But there's also just this idea that like other people are the authority and you should listen mm-hmm. to them and be a good girl. And really learning to eat this way is about learning to center your agency in the world. And given how disempowered people feel and how much shit goes wrong when you feel disempowered, like we are really looking at changing an entire life yeah, just by restoring a sense of you. Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately what we're, what, the future looks like is a a future where you have the tools and the skills that you need to act autonomously. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I think that autonomy, consent, autonomy, these things go hand in hand because we can't really make autonomous decisions without all the information without right. critical thinking, like without like it. Cause like, is it really an autonomous decision if you're not like seeing the big picture right. and like, that doesn't even necessarily always change the action. Like I love to use the example of wearing makeup as, mm-hmm. as this, where it's like, I know like, because I can critically think about makeup that like, if I'm going on a job interview I am probably going to be seen as more professional, maybe more like, you know, gender normatively attractive, like, you know, all these things. If I go, if I wear makeup on a job interview, I might still choose to wear makeup at that job interview because 
I know that that's how I'm being Mm -hmm. seen. Like I understand all the systems at work and I need the job. And so I am willing to appease those Mm -hmm. systems, but I have still made an autonomous choice to do that as opposed to just autopilot. Like so much about this is turning off autopilot and turning on our autonomous choices. Oh my God, yes. And I, I use the same example with makeup where I'm like, the whole point of fear facing of like a lot something I give my clients a lot of practices is like to break the rules they feel are mandatory for them to have worth and be safe and whatever it might be. So like going to the grocery store without makeup is not happening because going to the grocery store without makeup is important. It's because you want to break the somatic sense that you have no choice so that mm-hmm. when you do make the choice, it is autonomous. Yeah. Because we really are not making autonomous choices when we feel like there is such a threat on the other side. And that is so true with food and weight and so many things around body image. It's just about restoring agency. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love it. (laughs) Okay. Anything I didn't ask you about that I should? I don't think so. I I learned (laughs) that I can think of. (laughs) Um, I did want to mention like on the non-linear aspect of this journey, um, just to kind of like share and put myself out there into this space. I have done this healing work. I have been over it for a really long time outside of diet culture, outside of, you know, whatever. I'm in the food freedom space as much as a person can be. And lately I'm noticing that some weird shit is going on with my food and eating habits. And it's like related to certain, you know, work I'm doing in therapy. And now I get to look at that. But I think like, Everything we're talking about here, it's the skill, the self-trust, all of these, you know, bits and pieces of conscious agency allow me to be like, oh, that's interesting. Like, Mm -hmm. "Mm, I wonder what might be going on with that. And I wonder where I'd like to make choices inside of that to move through it in a healthy or at least, you know, like the best possible way for me right now. And that is the gift of having moved through the phase that you work with clients, like that first couple of years, it is not just like we say, not about food freedom, not about even food. It's like, it gives you the ability to later down the line, just notice that you're a human and tackle whatever that might look like. And sometimes that's related to food and eating. And a lot of times it's not. Absolutely. And it also doesn't mean that like, you're never going to need support again. It's like you said, you're, these are things that you're specifically working through with your therapist. It's like, but you are able to identify them and also identify the need for support and also recognize that that need is valid. And like, those are the skills. Absolutely. And I do feel also like it's happening without shame, Mm -hmm. which I think like a decade ago could never have happened. I could never have noticed something coming up like this and then not turned it against myself and been like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? And instead, I feel like without shame, after you kind of go through things, you just get to be like, "Hmm, that's like very interesting information. And it doesn't mean anything about me. I'm able to see it neutrally. So what would I like to do next? You know, like it doesn't make it easy. doesn't solve the problem. It just reduces the suffering of the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that especially as professionals, like we can do a lot towards removing shame about the fact that this is like an up and down process. And there's a, by being transparent about the fact that like, hi, I've been doing this for like 
decades and I'm struggling a little right now yeah. and need some support. And that's okay because I'm a human person mm-hmm. <laughs> and like human people are not robots. We don't just fix right. it. We don't just check a box and fix something and never have to think about it again because our lives totally. change and like things come up and yeah. I also like to validate that food and eating is just so damn convenient. Like if your brain is looking for a new coping strategy and yeah. this hasn't been one <laughs> and it reaches into its little bag of tricks, like what could be more convenient than something you literally have to do to stay alive multiple times a day and is always, always available as like a thought. It's yeah. just so, it makes so much sense. Well, even beyond that, like I, you know, in a lot of ways we are wired to see food as comfort and safety Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Like if you think about like a baby is going to cry and then get fed and then sleep because they feel safe, (laughs) you know, like we, there's a lot of reasons why we turn to food for coping that make perfect sense. You know, food is community. Food is like so many things other than just calories and you know nutrition totally okay well thank you so much for being on here this was awesome uh tell everybody where they can find you what it looks like to work with you etc yeah uh this has been great so first of all thank you so much for having me on for this conversation um yes i am on instagram at happy shapes naomi um, I am also, my website is happyshapes.co, that's C-O, not C-O-M, but gets we'll confusing. put that in the show notes, <laughs> yeah. And um, you can find everything there about my coaching, my group coaching, my speaking engagements, um, all of that. And yeah, those are probably the, pro- oh, and my podcast. I was yes. totally going to forget about that, which is, as you mentioned at the beginning, satisfaction factor. And we are on all of the podcast places. Amazing. Everyone, I highly recommend checking Naomi out. Um, we will continue to forge toward marketing that is transparent around this stuff. <laughs> uh, food neutrality rather than food freedom, like whatever it looks like, we are out here trying to uh, unpack it and present it more truthfully and realistically. So um, thank you so much for being on here, Naomi. And thank you you everyone for listening and I will catch you next week. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Nealand and I want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this episode of the This Is Not About Your Body podcast. I put out new episodes every Tuesday, so be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss it. And if you really enjoyed it, please go ahead and leave me a review. Um, Also, if you're looking for more information about body neutrality or you want to work with me, you can find me at my website, jessienealing.com, or you can just purchase my book, Body Neutral, A Revolutionary Guide to Overcoming Body Image Issues, wherever you buy books, ebooks, or audiobooks. We can also connect on Instagram or TikTok. My handle is jessienealand. And because I make this uh, podcast available for free and without any sponsors or ads, you can also feel free to show your support using the Patreon link in the show notes and know that your support, if you decide to uh, participate, is always very much appreciated. Lastly, thank you to my brother, Jason Neeland, for creating the music that plays at the beginning of the show. And thank you for listening, learning, and moving toward personal and collective body liberation.